He won't back down. Uh, we're glad you're here. Welcome to Emmaus Way. My name is Ben. I'm on staff here with Mark and Tim and Molly and Elizabeth. And yeah, we're just sort of getting into the fall in a lot of ways, but kicking off. Well, not really kicking off. We're sort of getting in the middle of a series on fear and about what things that make us afraid and what that keeps us from doing and what we might do if we weren't afraid. Uh, and yeah, I've also paired that with our minister's liturgy, and so spending the second week going over a vow of our minister's liturgy that we take together, and we're trying to explore it in the light of that lens of fear. But yeah, before we do that, and as we do every week, we're going to let our kids lead us in this song that Rody's been teaching them, and many of us know, but they're getting to know better. So yeah, take it away, Rody. All right, y'all sing that because I have a cold. <laughs>
usher the kids off upstairs to learn. Which vow are you doing this week, Rody? Um, mission. The one about being missionally oriented in Durham. Oh, great. Okay, so they're also going through our minister's liturgy together and talking about that and what that might look like in their young lives. And we're doing that down here. We're a little off sync in terms of which vow we're talking about each week, but you know, that's that's fun because we're going to each talk about all of them eventually. Um, and also building to a sort of time maybe later in the fall where we sort of recommit to that together. But yeah, in terms of more everyday sort of announcement-y type things, I know we have one that Molly and James are hosting a, what would you call it, Molly? Uh, May I play it together on Saturday? A getting together. <laughs> We're finally like swimming above water. Yeah, clearly a lot of thought has gone into the planning of this event, this yeah. getting together. And yeah. Be on the lookout for more information. You only have to bring yourself, unless I email you an Wow, okay. Like I said, a lot of planning. So yeah, that's this Saturday, uh, September 16th at 11. And yeah, we always look for those times, especially early in the fall when people, new people are coming in. If you're kind of newer to the community, it'd be a great space to get to know some folks at a little bit more relaxed pace than maybe here on Sunday evening. Uh, anything else announcement-wise, stuff happening? I did, that's the one I knew of, but if there's another one, please call it out. Um, ben, I think yeah. the team was hoping to share over a few weeks. That is a great, yes. Would you, and you were gonna do that, is yes. that right? Would you like to come up here and do that or use your can beautiful voice from I, there? I think I can project. You certainly can, so. Um, Towards one another in our community, 
Um, and to that end, I wanted to talk a little bit about a couple of opportunities um, for us to do it. So, um, I think a lot of us in a maze way, not all, but a lot of us can come, have come here through stories where uh, we've come through churches or church backgrounds that asked a lot of us um, and guilted us into things, and we're here as a, we're here in a place of refuge. At the same time, it's just us. <laughs> it's just I mean, we're with the Holy Spirit, but you know, we just it's, we are the ones who are doing this together, which is why every single person here has such a strong impact on our community because it's just us. Um, and so some of the ways that uh, we need just us um, to step into being missional to one another. Uh, the, the first one I want to mention is kids. Um, and there's music in the background, it's amazing. Um, so um, Elizabeth Cooper is, is not here. She's somebody who is, um, she's here, she's just not in this room. Um, but she's with us all. Uh, she's like our coordinator on staff um, that's really the intersection with our kids' ministry. And our, our, our service with the kids is really important. I mean, a lot of us are in the process of producing children. Um, we included, apparently. Um, but you know, our kids are really important to our values. We think of them as central to who we are as a community, which is why they lead us every week. Um, and one of the needs that we have in the kids um, ministry area is to have people be volunteers. Um, so I wanted to just throw that out to people. Um, you know, I came from a church background where it was like only women who did that, and it was very like very gendered, very domestic, and so I have a little bit of friction around me because I really love children. I just let's get over that or something. <laughs> let's move beyond that. Let's, let's do something different about patriarchy, etc. Um, so I, I just want to say, like, we'll be having announcements throughout the fall about ways that you can get involved in volunteering. And it would be really great if more people stepped into uh, you know, even just once a quarter volunteering with the kids. Um, that's one way to be missional. Even if you are not very comfortable with them, we've heard funny stories that we've about people who are like, oh my god, no, and then they're like, oh my gosh, this is so awesome. Um, so, so that's one thing I'd like to put front and center. Um, and the second thing that we'll be talking about uh, through um, throughout the fall as well is thinking about money and thinking about giving. Um, and this is even more than kids a place of static for me um, and possibly for others of us in the room, right? Like the heavy-handed offering thing going around the offering sermon that's longer than the sermon. Um, yeah, uh, that's not who we are. Um, but we do want to talk about what it means to um, invest in things like uh, even just helping us support our missional partnerships, helping us support what we're doing with the kids. Um, so one, I wanted to just say that. Um, if you're the kind of person who's just come in and you're like, no, I, I don't want to give, I, I feel like, like financially, it, it just triggers something for me. That's fine. Totally fine. Um, but for others of us who feel like uh, we've been here for enough time that we feel like um, it's time, to, you know, this is just us. We're doing this. There's no one else supporting this. And it's not, the money isn't going anywhere. 
We also pay like our Sunday night babysitters really well. Like we take it really, I mean it's not like a rolling cash, but we, what we do is we put our money into that. So this not is what that's going, the, the artists are like, woo, hallelujah. <laughs> but this is where that's going. So I just wanted to bring those two opportunities, ways of thinking about being missional to one another um, up. And we'll, you'll be hearing more from your team about ways to step forward in that. So thank you. That's great. Thank you, Christine. So I think that, yeah, always in the fall, we're, in, we're sort of trying to circle back because we always lose people and gain people in the fall on the academic calendar and say, really, who are we together? Because if Emmaus Way is anything, it's, an, it's a community that's committed to being shaped by every new voice that walks into the door, both in how we do this thing on Sunday, but also in how we shape ourselves um, as a whole. And so I think if you're new, what you've walked into is that sort of conversation of us thinking, okay, well, what are we doing and how, how are we going to be together? What are the things that gathered around a center we will not back down from and we're going to hold each other to um, and, and be mutually invested in as a language we use, co-ministers, that there, there's no higher office or, or more elaborate commitment that you can make to this community than gathering around this minister's liturgy we have and saying, yeah, I think I'm committed to living my life in that way. If you're interested in getting, obviously, Christine and lead team people and staff would be glad to talk to you about those things, but there are always cards on the table back there to my right side of the door, a yellow card where you can get on some of our email lists where some of this information will come around, and also a green card that will give you some contact info to maybe get in touch with folks if you're looking for places to plug in. But, yeah, that's... Hopefully a decent frame for the night. You have sort of on your back page uh, our minister's liturgy vow we're grappling with tonight to foster proximity and mutuality among our fellow ministers, seeking beauty and abundance in the diversity of God's kingdom in our midst. And yeah, Mark and friends are going to lead us into that. And I'll just note, we're really glad to have Anne Claire with us for the first time. Always glad to expand our, our stable of musicians who help shape us. And good to see Charles back and Tim Carlos as well. So yeah, I wanted to introduce Anne Claire, but we just Ben just did it. Thank you, Ben. I first heard uh, Anne Claire play. Um, it was when it was when Hard Worker had their CD release. That was when I first heard you play um, at, at Cat's Cradle Backroom, and I was like, oh my gosh, she was incredible. So I was really really glad that she agreed to come play. Um, you got a couple. Of, you have an album out from like a year and a half ago, yeah. and you have a new single that has come out. Viewing yeah. it as a single, is that how mm -hmm. you? Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll let you tell us a little bit about the song we're getting ready to do, which is one that you wrote, and it's the one you've just recorded and released. So, sure. Tell us a little bit. Yeah. Hi, I'm Ann Claire. Thanks a lot for having me today. Um, this next song is about my Mima. I don't know if anyone in this room ever had a Mima or has a Mima, but um. My Mima and I had a very close relationship. She was um, very kind and just sort of an example of unconditional love in my life. And she was also incredibly uptight. And uptight in the way that old Southern ladies can be. Um, you couldn't drink in her home. And I think the person that was most oppressed by this was my Pop Pop. <laughs> who would give me $20 and ask me to run down to the ABC store and get a bottle of Aristocrat and leave it in the mailbox. <laughs> and I think the most drunk she ever was was she had some Benadryl. And she said, if I had a hat, I couldn't put it on my head. 
and my pop-pop had to carry her to bed. Um, she passed away about a year and a half ago, and it was very sudden, and um, my family was pretty shocked by it. And, it. and pretty soon after she passed away, everyone in my family started having dreams about her. Everyone but me. And as the firstborn granddaughter, the only musician, I was pretty irritated about this. <laughs> um, and, you know, I kept wondering, where is my dream, where is my dream? And then one night I had my dream, and I was in my bed, and she came into my room, and she was wearing all white, and she said my name, and it was the most beautiful sound I'd ever heard. And she came to the side of my bed, and I said, where have you been? Like, what have you been doing? I've been waiting for you. And then my voice came out of her mouth and said, I just can't stop crying. And I woke up, and I was so disappointed that my dream was just a reflection of my grief. It wasn't a message from beyond. It wasn't some wisdom. And I wrestled with this for a while, and I ended up writing this song, and it's called Second Time, and I released it um, in March of this year. And I hope you enjoy it. I'm not afraid of loving. I'm not afraid to move on.
Because we have and they have not, my children, my children, because they want what we have got. should want my children my children what do we have that they should want We had a momal and a pawpaw, so I think that's close to a meemaw. I'm not sure which is the higher form of development, right? <laughs> meemaw sounds, I mean, that sounds a little more proper. That might have been uppity in she our, our like phrase. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of phrases like I do declare have flown out of our household, so anyway. Hey, I, when I saw the set list tonight, I was really excited. Mark and others have done a fantastic job on this. And, uh, we really have started our conversation as we always hope to do artistically and Mark's really been problematizing the whole idea of proximity that uh, it produces sometimes fear um, and we've looked in the last song about what happens when we uh, think that in some way separation makes the world uh, a better place and as well as a text tonight that is really embroiled with conflict uh, uh, what does not backing down look like from any of those vantage points so thank you Mark for really kind of leading us into the conversation today I want to give you a chance though first to greet each other and offer each other the peace of Christ or just a hello uh, if you're around somebody that you don't know uh, please introduce yourself and uh, connect with each other for a few moments and then I'll give us a shout and we will jump into Mark chapter 2 tonight I personally believe that a major word of thanks should go to Molly, who's done a pastoral act of unbelievable kindness. She put the candy corn on the snack thing. And candy corn is like maybe one of the greatest Sunday night church inventions of all time. I mean, you'll pay the price later, but I was reading my dialogue back there and I probably had one, maybe two, Possibly even a third handful of the candy corn, and it's it's like free basic sugar, and it's you know you don't need the spoon, you don't need the open flame, but it does the job. And so, 
I think we, when we first started doing Emmaus Way 12 years ago, we realized that caffeine and sugar were among our best friends. So thank you to Molly for doing the, just a truly extra pastoral act on this. Gail Thomas um, made two pies. What's that happen? Gail Thomas made two pies. And Gail Thomas made two pies. They just weren't there when I was back there. So anyway, we'll give Gail due love for that. Um, so... Uh, thank you guys. Last week I was away. I was uh, doing a, a funeral for a high school friend, a really good friend of mine. And so I, I sensed your love and support. It was one of those kind of threading a needle through about 15 theological eyes at the same time. And uh, it was, a, it was a, a meaningful day, uh, but I missed Molly's dialogue. I got to hear later and just absolutely lovely in terms of asking us uh, what does it mean to imitate uh, Christ in thought, word, and deed? And today we're going to get into proximity and mutuality, which is another one of our vows and our minister's liturgy. But I wanted to start today by plunging into our text, which is Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12. And you guys who've known me for a long time know that I'm a bit of a Mark geek. It's the gospel along with Luke that has always been the most dynamic in terms of my own reading and trying to understand the gospel and live into that gospel. Um, and just a quick kind of preset to this is that Mark chapter 2 is a text that follows a chapter in Mark that I think is really a chapter of origins. It, it really in many ways is designed to give us a frame of reference of Jesus' preparation and what this kind of phenomenon of Jesus was to mean to first Galilee and then the rest of, of Israel. And in fact, in that first chapter, you're introduced to one of the lead characters in the gospel, which are crowds. Jesus is pressed upon by crowds. There are people around him. He's constantly moving quickly from one crowd to the next. But the text that we're jumping in today starts really the first really block of stories in Mark's gospel. And I find it really interesting that this block of stories is intimately connected to conflict. There are really five stories in a row that all involve conflict. And maybe we shouldn't be surprised by that because once you get crowds involved, you're going to get a variety of people, a variety of, of positionalities together. But it's quite telling that in Mark's telling of a gospel that's much larger than what what. Mark writes, uh, these conflict stories are so prominent in the, in the placement. They, they, they literally leap off first in this. And, and in some ways, I think there's this sense that Jesus talking about this kingdom um, is in some way uh, requiring that he directly face and conflict some of the forces that would tame the kingdom that he's talking about and perhaps would reframe that kingdom into existing religious traditions. So that's a little bit of a setup. It's just, this is a story that I've always enjoyed. But if somebody would just grab it uh, and read uh, 2, 1 through 12, that would be fantastic. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, 
Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves, and he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Stand up and take your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Thanks, Gail. So I wanted to be a bit prejudicial in our reading of this text today by looking at what, because there's a lot in it, but I want to look at what's beautiful in this text. And there are things that I think that are, are deeply beautiful. And in fact, I would say that in this text, there are some what I would call beautiful proximities uh, in the story. And what I mean by that is something beautiful about entities, people, characters, things that are close to each other in a meaningful way. They're, they're proximal to each other. And I wanted to throw that to you immediately of what do you see in the story? Uh, what are some of these, if I'm talking about beautiful proximities, what are some things that are close in this story that, that, that may smack of, of, of beauty or emancipation to you? Well, the love of the friends to bring the man to Jesus and to care enough to go up and dig a hole out of the roof, that is pretty amazing, beautiful friendship. Yeah, there's, there's some sense of deep closeness in a person who is deeply ill or, uh, or uh, struggling with some sort of capacity and friends that are standing there with them. That, that's beautiful. Thanks, Joel. I don't know if this is what you're getting after, but I could, I just think about like the dirt or whatever it is going to the ceiling of your inside, like, what's going on here? Um, and like that experience. Yeah, this is like the, 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 Closeness to Jesus involves lots of other closeness. I mean, I, I grew up in a tradition where close to Jesus was one of the most abstract things on earth, right? I mean, I, I would sit and go, am I close to Jesus? I, I mean, I don't know. Is he in my heart? I mean, it doesn't, you know, I mean, you know, there were a lot of deep kind of uh, metaphorical abstractions to that. This one has none of those, right? Close to Jesus means a hole in a ceiling and somebody lowered, literally, physically close to Jesus, right? Which I think is great, J. Russ. Other thoughts? Some proximity in just regular life. There, it doesn't seem like they're in some fancy concert hall or it wasn't like this gigantic thing with angels singing. It just was like very regular life and something crazy happened. So the proximity of the holy and the importance to just... Sure. I mean, Jesus is in basically a backyard with people. I mean, we've done this, which I think is one of the most fun things. I know, SK, you've hosted a couple of these of, of house concerts by our, our artists. And, it, and, and that's one of the things. It's just incredibly fun to be in a living room with someone who's playing music, sharing their art, um, and, and telling stories. Uh, 
like Anne Claire just told us, they're, they're, you, you feel that story more uh, by being in proximity to the person who's performing. Jesus is definitely um, doing a house concert here rather than, as, you, as, as Sarah says, maybe some deeply formal space that he could be in. And his proximity to commonality, common pains, wounds, questions, all of those things, is, this, this space is filled with those things. Other thoughts? Thank you. The secrets of the people's heart are close to Jesus. He can sense them somehow. Yeah, yeah. And I'm one of those people, Brian, I don't think this is a miracle at all. I, I, like many of you, <laughs> I've spoken many a time <laughs> where I've looked at somebody who wasn't excited about my saying what I was saying and knew deep in my heart they were saying, <laughs> this schmuck needs to get off the stage now, right? Or uh, as soon as the heretic's done, then we'll get somebody who loves God up here, right? Uh, so I'm not sure it's a miracle, but it's quite amazing, isn't it, that he knows deeply what the, the kind of the adversarial theologies of the day would be. He knows them. He even knows how to twist them on top of themselves. Sure. Excellent, right? Others. I mean, going off that, it's interesting, right, that there were probably not everyone in the hut or whatever was questioning and skeptical, right? So there was some kind of proximity among people, even just the watchers who were all there for maybe different reasons. But. Yeah, I mean, so we're like in the middle of as Emily's pointing out, of kind of a Trump-Clinton rally, right? We, they just decided to share the same space. They were going to be fine together. Uh, just, you know, there, there are people who disagree dramatically with each other in terms of how life is to be lived. And there are people with power there. There are people with great power in that space. Absolutely. Yeah, escape. So I, I have questions about this beauty. Um, but they, they brought him to heal his physical body, and he says... Now your sins are forgiven. And so I wonder about this beauty of, is Jesus looking at the wholeness of this person, of something deeper than this immediate need that these friends have brought, brought him there for? Yeah, SK raises a really interesting point that maybe Jesus is understanding the, the proximity of that person to wholeness is maybe a lot closer than we imagine sometimes when we see somebody in pain, right? That we, or we, um, um, uh, last week, you know, doing a, a, a funeral sermon, the idea that perhaps our, our notion of healing might not be the exact same notion that God uses all the time. Yeah, there's, there's something there that's more complex. It's not just a trick on the, on the uh, Pharisees and the, the, the kind of the authorities to trick them. Yes. Yeah, Christine. So going off a little bit on some of the things that people have said, um, I think that maybe one of the interesting proximities that I haven't noticed before is the proximity between um, literacy and then the spoken word and then the power dynamics between people who are literate and people who are illiterate. Like, so, so the scribes are people who know the written word very well. Um, but what this text does is it juxtaposes really, I mean, really, the, the writing is very, you know, economical. It does, there's very little said, but, right, the play on words that Jesus says, when he's like, what's easier to say to someone? 
Interesting. To yeah. say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk. Mm -hmm. So that you know I can do A. I say to you, right? So there's this, I, I don't know, the holding together of like textual command and the power that comes from textual command and then an oral accessible to all. I, I, don't, I, I don't know, this is sort of inchoate, but there's something beautiful about that tension um, and it opens up, I, I don't know, it just, it, it pulls people together who maybe can't read who know the words, who can speak the word. Yeah, you know, the theologians, particularly those that look at the ancient world, talk a lot about that as a speech act. That, that, that sometimes we think that actions only come from reading things, and reading the right way with her head tilted in the right direction. But this is truly a speech act that Jesus has spoken, and it's, and it's framed in a way that everyone there can see, hear, and embrace the, the spokenness of that. There, there is something really powerful about how that works. And that Jesus is speaking in a language that is meaningful to everybody in the room, regardless of their education. Absolutely. Other proximities. There's a lot in this text. So let me reframe the question. You'll get a second shot at this. So ideas, people, enemies, forms of communication, theologies. There's clearly a theology of brokenness here, that people that are, are broken in some way are not close to God. We, we confront that still, and Jesus seems to have little understanding or desire to continue that kind of thinking. But there are things that are really, really close, and, and including uh, these these carriers who've dropped this, this man through the roof and, and placed him at the feet of Jesus. Let's riff on that a little bit, what Joy was talking about. Um, let's talk about the idea of mutuality. And what I mean by mutuality is relationships of trust and appropriate dependence. Um, what are some of the mutual relationships? What are some of the mutualities that we see in this text? And some of the things you've said already fit that, but let's ask that again from a, from a relationship lens. This is confounding a whole, in some ways, teaching of the text that plays really well in our very individualistic culture. You know, I want to be right with God. I'd like for Will to be right with God, but, you know, it doesn't really impact me that much other than I just like Will. Um, but to some degree, that logic, which is very honed logic in our culture, seems to break down in this story that in some ways we start talking about our lives being deeply impacted by the faith, the horror, the anger, the pain, the loss, the realness, the goodness, the joy of other people. There's an interconnectedness here that seems to run against our mythology. Molly Jim? Know if these so the fact like I think remember about mutuality, it's a lot easier to talk 
need to have meaning, like a mutual relationship with people that I barely know and that I would still be willing to carry them to Jesus to be healed. Um, and I think, because yeah, I think I sometimes like rank almost mutuality by the point of that's a classic read-in, isn't right. it? I mean, I would do something like that for a friend, but, you know, I mean, some of you guys, I mean, that's, you know, and, and, and certainly better than a friend's roof. Um, and we've been in the, how many times have you been in that situation where the situation hit you? And it didn't matter what your sense of relationship or duty was. It was in front of you. I remember a, a day, and you guys know I do research in the moral movement, and we were in the, the legislature um, after having delivered letters to congressmen about the unwillingness to expand uh, uh, Medicaid. And so letters had been delivered, and for some reason the Capitol Police zoomed in on a threat, a horrible threat. A 14-year-old boy, uh, black, had delivered a letter and placed it on a desk and walked out of that. That seemed really dangerous to them. And so they kind of stormed in this group of 500, 700 people and wanted to talk to that boy. And so they came kind of coming to him. And, and if you are, if you've grown up in the South, if you've uh, been a part of the black-white dance that has dominated our life, you know what that means, right? Uh, we'll be benevolent but we're going to make sure that you're appropriately afraid. And this young man was standing beside me, and by some chance the crowd had pressed me against Reverend Barber. So we're shoulder to shoulder, and the, the state policeman is coming right to us. And it was one of those moments where I may have said, hey, I'm an ethnographer, or, or, or uh, I don't know anything about this, or I don't know this boy, but th there was a choice to be in that posture or to stand. And about six of us just stood broadly and physically and, and said, you cannot speak to this young man. And while the crowd moved him back and they explained how benevolent it was, they were helping him out and helping to figure out how to function in society and all those things. But there were no relationships that dominated the six or seven of us that were there other than being part of something much, much larger. And we had to make a decision. And Molly points out that mutuality might be diminished by our understandings of what friendship is and the boundaries of friendship. Absolutely. Anything else? I enjoy the way in this story that Jesus is in precisely that space you're talking about, right? Like, I'm Jesus, I'm in this hut. The roof starts coming in. Here come the friends. And immediately, like, Jesus isn't managing this situation. He's just, like, it's almost celebrating the proximities that are, like, overlapping on top of each other and calling out what he knows that people are thinking in the room and saying your sins are forgiven and sort of just like see something of Jesus here is like reveling in the proximities that are that are happening on an instantaneous basis and saying like all right yeah how are we going to put all this together yeah the sermon there the questions is a little playful right now that we're here, right? I mean, you know, we'll all probably be in that position, me sooner than most of you guys, in kind of a me-maw or ma-maw or paw-paw kind of role where everybody's kind of gathered around us and you're at that age where you get to say whatever you want, regardless of whether people want to hear it at all, and you get to kind of revel in the fact that the family table is pretty diverse and you get to say it anyway, and Jesus seems to have some fun with that. Quick question here, I want to move this on, but... Um, 
What are some fears that might have been the things that interrupted these beautiful mutualities or beautiful um, proximities of this text? What fears were present that could have short-circuited the whole scene? something by us is, is one of the threats here, right? That's why we've got a gate. That's why I've got a roof. Uh, all of those things, absolutely. In that same vein, maybe the people who brought the paralytic man, maybe there was the possibility of fear of offending. I'm sure like the paralyzed man was probably much lower socially than the homeowner. So if they offended the homeowner, maybe their own status society was at risk because they were taking side of the wrong person, but they didn't let that fear of offending him by breaking his house. Isn't that a great thought? I thought about it too. Like, let's say we're going to do a little tele-evangelism tonight, right? Uh, and the evangelist generally gets to choose their sick, right? <laughs> so we get to roll in some people in wheelchairs or things like that that we're going to heal, right? I mean, that's part of the dance, right? But talk about a confrontation to Jesus. Seriously, to you choose your sick and bring them to the front of the healer, right? That's a moment of dramatic confrontation. Yeah, and, and one that... The preacher might say, get out of here. That's not on my dance card tonight. Sure. Excellent. So think about this. There are some beautiful proximities and there are fears. We're going to work this around to our, um, our minister's liturgy. But thanks to Molly, she passed on something I thought was really interesting. Is So we live in a world where... Proximity and mutuality is desperately needed. I don't think anybody would debate that we desperately need people living closer to each other and in much more lovingly defined relationships. And we need a much greater sense of imagination related to God's kingdom where every life matters, where every person matters, where there aren't things that define people out of the love and goodness of God. Um, this was an interview. Some of you may have heard this. This was Ruby Sales. I don't know if you guys know. Uh, was a civil rights icon. Her, her life was, if you don't know this story, look it up. It's pretty powerful. Her life was um, um, saved quite dramatically. She had been released from jail as a part of a protest uh, in Alabama, 17 years old, went to get a bottle of Coke with the four friends that had been arrested and a man with a shotgun came up and accosted them and started screaming at them and uh, didn't really wait for their answer. He just shot. Uh, and when he shot at her, a young white seminarian, she's black, a young white seminarian jumped in front of her, uh, took her, took the shotgun blast and died. Um, his name uh, was Jonathan Daniels, but she's the founder of Spirit House in Atlanta. And this was an interview that she did about three weeks ago, I think, on Krista Tippett's On Being. But she tells an incredible story about the importance of coming close. 
She, she's describing her own faith, which after these dramatic moments in the, in the movement itself, uh, wandered into whole different kinds of thinkings. I think as she understood the, the Marxism that she developed as something as apart from faith. Ironically, she ended up uh, as a seminarian at the same seminary of this young man who died. Um, but this is her talking about God. Right, I never really left, but a defining moment for me happened when I was getting my locks washed and my locker's daughter came in one morning and she had been hustling all night and she had sores on her body and she was just in a state, drugs. So something said to me, ask her, where does it hurt? And I said, Shelly, where does it hurt? And just that simple question unleashed territory in her that she'd never shared with her mother. And she talked about having been incested. She talked about all the things that had happened to her as a child. And she literally shared the source of her pain. And I realized that in that moment, listening to her and talking with her, that I needed a larger way to do this work. Rather than a Marxist materialist analysis of the human condition, I needed something bigger. Also, I was riding down the road one day in Washington after having been in a demonstration against the war in Iraq, and suddenly out of nowhere I started crying. And I realized that God had been with me even when I hadn't been with myself. And those moments made me really begin to seek to go back to really think deeply about, and this is a really a powerful point that she makes, is the uniqueness of black folk religion. So I needed to think deeply about my black folk religion tradition and really want to develop it and in a very intentional way, an inner life that had to do with how I live in the world. So she narrates this incredibly powerful experience of asking, coming close to just a young woman that walks in who is the daughter of somebody, um, and to continue her amazing words, she makes this point, this is a point about um, a theology, a public theology of what I would say proximity and mutuality. She asked, and basically she's critiquing the theologies that we live out. How is it that we develop a theology or theologies in a 20th century capitalist technocracy where only a few lives matter? How do we raise people up from disposability to essentiality? And this goes beyond the question of race. What is it that public theology can say to the white person in Massachusetts who's heroin addicted because they feel that their lives have no meaning because of the trickle-down impactness of whiteness in the world today? What do you say to someone who's been told that their whole essence is whiteness and power and denomination and a domination, and when that no longer exists, then they feel like they're dying or they feel they've got caught up in the throes of death, whether it's heroin addiction, I don't hear any theology speaking to the vast amount. That's why Donald Trump is essential, because although we don't agree with him, people think he's speaking to the pain that they're feeling. So what is the theologies? I don't hear anyone speaking to the 45-year-old person in Appalachia who's dying of a young age, who feels like they've been eradicated because whiteness is so much smaller today than it was yesterday. Where's the theology that redefines for them what it means to be fully human? I don't hear any of that coming out of any place today. And we've got, there's a spiritual crisis in white America. It's really interesting how she picks on the pain of the dominant class. It's a crisis of meaning. And I don't hear, we talk a lot about black theologies, but I want a liberating white theology. I want a theology that speaks to Appalachia. I want a theology that begins to deepen people's understandings about their capacity to live fully human lives and to touch the goodness inside of them rather than call upon the part of themselves that's not relational.
Because there's nothing wrong with being European-American. That's not the problem. It's how you actualize that history and how you actualize that reality. It's almost like white people don't believe that other white people are worthy of being redeemed. I don't quite understand that. It must be more sexy to deal with black folk than it is to deal with white folk. If you're a white person, so is a black person. I want a theology that gives hope and meaning to people who are struggling to have meaning in a world where they no longer are as essential to whiteness as they once were. I think she's asking us to come deeply close to pains and to agonies and to long histories and long stories. Because when you start talking about coming close to whiteness, particularly as white people in our culture, um, you're talking about a story that many of us do not want told. And when you're talking about, especially in our community, when you're talking about speaking, as Christine just said, in a language that everyone understands, some of us say that that's our power. Our power is in confusing people. Our power is in saying things that other people don't understand. Our power is derived by our ability to say things better than other folks. So to some degree, these are powerful words about people like us forming a public theology of closeness to questions, people, realities that we do not like to ask, and for us to form mutual relationships in those things rather than helping dominant, kind, and condescending relationships with those things. I would say to us in Emmaus way, this is what we've strived to do here. We've succeeded and we've failed, but in a small way, we want to live out a public theology of mutuality and proximity. Um, here's, the, here's the text of our vow. To foster proximity and mutuality among our fellow ministers, seeking beauty and abundance in the diversity of God's kingdom in our midst. So my question to turn back to us is, what does that mean for us now? Uh, this is a chance to be a little bit prophetic of kind of looking at the world we live in and say, what does that mean for us now? Let's take a moment or two on that. What does proximity and mutuality mean for us as opportunity? And you can feel free to add the fear in that, that inevitably sometimes abrogates those opportunities. What does it mean? I think it has to do with um, confrontation, like seeing relationships as where two people are against each other and their their needs are um, like I either I'm gonna get the money or you're gonna get the money. Either I'm gonna get the house or you're gonna get it. Either I have power or you do. So these binaries where there's a war going on, there's a conflict going on. I think mutuality involves seeing ourselves in the other and trying to care about each other and care about ourselves and, and try to come together and and view each other as, as fellows, I guess, to, to break down that conflict um, between two opposing sides. And it's too simple, really, but we're all on the same side. I mean, it's a dumb, it's a dumb thing to say, but I'm going to say it. It's actually not a dumb thing to say because the thing we've been raised in is that there are sides. <laughs> and there are sides that you join and sides that you reject. And what you're saying, Brian, and it's kind of what Whitney said in terms of the whole theology of this text. What if there were not sides? Because if there were not sides, then everybody's life deeply affects the quality of my own. And my sense of peace, wellness, uh, wholeness is deeply affected by that in every person in this room. I think that's deeply profound. Others, I mean, what is our, what is our, what, what might our calling be? 
I think we have to be willing to get dirty. And that means going into the home of a neighbor that smokes, and you come out of there and you think. But you do it because there's a person that needs you. And nobody else is going there. Not her family. She doesn't even have any family. But we have to be willing to do that and go right where they're at. Absolutely. Yeah. And like to jump off that, like I think for me and for some people, it means you have to be willing to let people into your dirty like. Though, Emily, I love your invitations to your house. They're so beautifully crafted. I may wipe the countertops, I may not, but we're all still going to be in the backyard hanging out with a beer and some food. And that's me, it makes me, the, 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 the intense cleaning me just smiles and says, yes! <laughs> just going to have a beer in Emily's backyard with the kids. Yeah. But well said. I think it means like getting really honest about what is it for us that is the but who's going to fix my room, right? Like, I think we sort of all have yeah. that cause, um, that, but in um, mm -hmm. doing some work on that no longer being a summit of a voice or a player and how we are getting dirty and um, living into a public theology. So I hope this isn't too tangential, but it's sort of pertinent today. If anybody was listening to NPR today, they are only casting it from Florida. And one of their reporters is a social news reporter, and he was reading postings listed all over the country where people are offering up their home or a meal or whatever for anybody who is either coming into their state or they're buying them pizza if they are in a town that they can't get to them. It's this outpouring of meeting them where they hurt. And it doesn't matter geographically where these people are, they're just trying to get information out on social media that they are willing to either bring you into their home or they'll pay for a meal in whatever town you're living in. Or yeah. Yeah, that kind of thing reminds us that we have so much more power than we can imagine. That we sometimes we feel powerless, but in reality, we have this connectivity that we could get 10 people in our home tonight uh, before. Eucharist is done, right? We just have that ability to do those things. One more. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot lately about the proximity of where I am in terms of just my roots and, and what I am, right? Like being here, I think a lot of us are here because the traditional American Christian church has not worked for us. And I still feel so uncomfortable talking um, about <laughs> spiritual matters with other people. But the fact of the matter is that we're this far away from you know some people down the road that might have vastly different sort of values than us, but we all believe in, in Jesus Christ, right? So having those conversations with people who aren't seeing it yet, aren't seeing how to help, aren't seeing what's gone wrong, and I may be losing by what I'm saying here, but having conversations with people that, like, I put a wall up. I definitely, if someone, you know, asked me, oh, what do you believe? I'm like, well, you know, uh, not like those guys. But those guys are like me, and I can talk to them and be like, hey, let's, let's figure this out together. Like, we are very, very close to people that we, we definitely build a wall between. And I've been thinking more about how to have these conversations. Um, because I have to. I mean, yeah. yeah, that was my challenge 
last um, Saturday night as I was sitting there with half of a room that believes in sides, right? And I better represent our side really well because that's where hope lies, right? And what happens, and it's actually incredibly liberating when you don't believe in sides, right? Or other than the silly sides that you create for yourself in your own little domain of thought or reality, but other than that, uh, the idea that what God is doing in the world is invitational beyond our wildest imagination is in some ways the, the best of things to be said. And there is, and I would suggest that we think a lot about this, and the whole liturgy will remind us and give us opportunity, is if we don't live inside, wow, one of the things that we we're free to do that we've never been free to do because we're not trying to win someone to our side or suggest our side is better. Um, and I think that's been part of our experience here, partly with organizing, but the idea that collaboratively, it's amazing what can be done. Um, I realized that I forced you guys to take this class that I liked so much at Duke uh, a few years ago, and I'm gonna quote again from it one more time. You guys can all pass the final in this, I think, but uh, I was, um, one of my favorite theologians, Willie Jennings, uh, made this point. This were, this were actually, I'll just read a snatch of this, but these were the final words in his class on race and the uh, identity of Christianity in America. And his point in this, and it's made many times, is that, uh, that Christianity in America is deeply, deeply marked, stained, it's lost its imagination because it, it, it functions in a grid where it thinks of race, it thinks of we, and it thinks of they. And so he talks a lot about the idea of an alternative missionary mode as a missionary Baptist. It's a natural word for him to say. But that alternative missionary mode for him is oriented entirely around the body of Jesus. And for him, reading this story, I think what he would say, being one who's deeply conscious of bodies and how we've marked bodies in our, our world and how we've created even a scale of bodies that are good and those that are not, is in this story, I think he would be deeply interested in where was the body of Jesus. This is a short snatch on that. Jesus creates a space where human needs are made visible in community and people are joined together in his work of redemption. At one level, we see this as primarily a reality of vision. To see Jesus heal, to hear his life-giving word, and to gain his guidance requires that those who come must stand next to those who they would prefer not to be near, even those they hate. But Jesus joins people. This is the way of redemption. It is redemption in joining. And then a final point on this, he just makes this point that part of us I mean, that deeply ingrained in Christianity is the idea that the faith is segregated. Uh, think of all the terms that we have between saved and unsaved, uh, faithful and backslidden, uh, white church and black church. In uh, my, my fundamentalist thing, it was good church and bad church, right? And it wasn't always racial, it was just people who preached in a certain way. Those are the deep, deep terms that have just created grooves in our understanding of theology. And uh, he makes this point that kind of, and it, and it produces homogeneity in ministry, right? I'm capable of ministering in good churches to good people uh, without thinking of the horrific implications of a statement that stupid. Um, but he makes this point. This is his last uh, sentences in that class. This is my crucial and final point. I believe the real issue is never what we sh what should we do or how should we fit these racial concerns into our work of ministry. 
Rather, the real issue is whether we are open to the ways of the Spirit is inviting us to join with others. The question here is one of resistance. Will we resist the call of the Spirit? My point here is that being church requires more than a density of theological pronouncements or ecclesial gestures, but a deep communal gesture toward joining. The embrace that awaits us is precisely the embrace that will reveal the stunning new reality that the church announces by its life, that God has indeed become flesh in a Jewish body, and that same God does inhabit all bodies made new by the Spirit. Amen. So our song of confession tonight is a Alanis Morissette song we've done a few times. I call it that I would be good. Even though we're there are ways that we're talking about, since we're talking about mutuality, there, there are ways that having a song that, that uh, is, is from the singular first person in some ways maybe feels a little strange, but, but I think that's part of the understanding of how, how do we see ourselves in the midst of, of others, how do we see ourselves in the midst of community. Um, and I think this song is sort of in many ways about what, uh, what larger communities do to individuals. So this is our confession, and I would be good. What key are we in? A major. What am I supposed to be in? There we go.
around this table that walls do not keep us free, but rather we are free when we don't live into sides. Because in the coming together, seeing one another, talking to one another, even engaging with someone we normally don't engage, because let's face it, we don't always talk to everyone within this community, we are invited to see and be moved by the beauty and abundance and the diversity of God's kingdom in our midst. 
This practice, however, of an abundant open table, of a place brimming with hospitality for all, is not without risk. It involves a mixing between one another that undoes the distinction between outsider and insider. Boundaries shade into one another. There are no guarantees. It would not be an open table if we picked in advance those who, by law or stat status, are fit to receive the abundance of this table. We simply welcome one another week after week around this table on the basis of a shared humanity. And that welcome, that coming around the open table to break bread and pour wine, entails the risk of letting go of our protective prejudgments, assumptions, and expectations. It opens outward and expects surprises. It invites disruption into our life. The status quo is challenged. The familiar is defamiliarized. Things do not remain intact as they were. The center of gravity shifts at this table. The boundaries become blurred. What is found is, in fact, beauty and abundance and the diversity of God's kingdom at this table. For here is a liminal zone of mutual sharing, a kind of covenantal exchange that both receives and gives. And through this practice, week after week, we are changed. And we are changed because we begin to see a larger mutual indebtedness emerge in which all of us who gather around remain distinct yet fundamentally connected. And that connection to one another and our generous creator changes everything. For the connections that are found at this table of proximity and mutuality gives us strength, and I think in some ways forces us out of our fear to more fully be people of proximity and mutuality outside of, that, of this space, of this table, no matter the cost. This table of proximity and mutuality found here forces us to stop waiting and wondering and being paralyzed by who will fix our roofs or whatever but clause we have in our life that keeps us from going and being like the four men in this gospel. This table of proximity and mutuality gives us strength and I think forces us outside of our fear and even our intellectual delight to really start thinking about what bodies are we going to need to stand in front of stop police from killing black and brown bodies and to stop ICE from taking children out of this country. This table of proximity and mutuality forces us to see what paralyzed folks we are being invited to pick up and take to the feet of Jesus. But I think it also gives us strength and lessens our fear when we are the person that needs to ask to be taken and lowered down through a roof. This table calls us to remember the one that embodied proximity and mutuality most fully and invites us to go and do likewise. So I invite you all to come to the table to break bread for one another, to pour wine or juice for one another, 
to hand out a gluten-free cracker at Emmaus Way. We serve one another. Um, so it's a bit rowdy. Don't be discouraged by that. Um, so we serve one another. You may say the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, or if you prefer, you can say the love of God for you, the peace of God for you. Let us come to this table of proximity and mutuality and be changed. <laughs> 